0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. So we are in week four of this series that we've been working through for the last several weeks called Grace and Truth, where we are talking about faith, gender, and sexuality. And so far in this series, what we've really been really wanting to focus on and the base that we've been trying to, to lay as we've been going uh, is very important for us as we have been talking about this so far and as we continue to talk about these topics in the future. And before we move on into our discussion today, I, I feel like it is very important for us to just remind ourselves of some of the important things that we have already covered so far. And that is, first and foremost, we, we have got to be approaching this, this topic and, and every topic that we uh, face in our lives today with grace and with truth, with God's grace and God's truth, which is what we have here in this book that he has given us, one of the greatest gifts that he has given us. And we get to, to learn these things together. We get to to go on the journey to find out what God says on the best way to live our lives is. And we we get to do that alongside one another. The second thing I want to remind us of is something that has come up several times in our sermon club and has come up here on Sundays as well. And that is at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And what that means is, as we all approach Jesus we are all coming to him broken. We all have a specific kind of brokenness that is within us. And one of the things that we've been trying to make sh- to communicate through this series is that one of those things that we do find within ourselves that usually is broken is with our sexuality. So as we keep those couple of things in mind, that we are all on the same playing field, and that we want to approach this with grace first and then moving into God's truth. I want to start our time today with a story. I want to tell you about a young man named Eric. You see, Eric was raised in the, in the church. He had Christ, Christian parents. And by the time Eric turned 13 years old, he realized that he was not like his buddies. He noticed that the way his friends were talking about and looking at girls was... Actually, the same way that he felt about boys. It was when he was 13, Eric realized that he was same sex attracted, that he was gay. And he was not the only one that noticed that. His friends did too. And because of that, he began to be bullied and mocked and beaten up because of this same sex attraction. And when Eric finally got enough courage to go to his parents and tell them about this, this thing that he had just discovered about himself, that he was attracted to the same sex, his parents' response was not what he was hoping for. Instead of receiving love from those who had brought him into the world, they kicked him out of their house. And they told him, "We can't have this kind of an abomination living in our home." It is a tragic story that, unfortunately, is not the only one like it. The 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 same sex attraction that Eric wrestled with is a topic that many of us try to avoid. I I feel like that, especially within the church. Because there are political, there are social, there are relational ramifications that come with it as we talk about those things. But as followers of Jesus, we cannot. We cannot avoid it. We have been called to be light in the darkness. And so we must not shrink away from difficult topics like this one. And so as today... Today, as we delve into this topic of same-sex sexuality, we're going to look at what the Bible says about it. And then we're going to try to figure out what does that mean for us. How do we live that truth out in our lives? Now, I know there's a very high probability that I'm not going to say everything correctly today. I'm going to stumble over my words. I may say things incorrectly just know that I, I love you guys. I love God. And so I just ask for patience and grace today as we talk about this. As fellow Jesus followers, that's what I ask for. And I also ask that you try, not, try your best to not shut down. If you hear something today that you don't agree with, that's okay. Just don't shut down as we've talked about before, lean into this tension with us because it is a tension. And we are all trying our best to follow Jesus each and every day with everything that we have. The ground is level at the cross. Give the Holy Spirit a chance this morning to speak to you as I have tried to throughout the course of my life. You know, when I was a young, young man growing up in small town Montana, going to my small rural churches, if I had somebody come up to me and ask me, what are your thoughts on same sex sexuality? What do you think the Bible says about it? My, my response would have been very easy. I would say, well, obviously the Bible clearly teaches that same sexuality is a sin and God hates it. And my response would have been very similar to what Eric's parents' was. That it clearly teaches that being gay or lesbian is an abomination. And if that same person had asked me, Hey, where do you find that at? Where is that located in the Bible? I would not have been able to give them a great answer, because I wasn't really sure. I was only basing it off of one story that I knew for sure that I had grown up hearing. And this mindset persisted into my well into my 20s until I took it upon myself to finally delve into the text and see what God actually said about same-sex sexuality. I don't want to assume that all of you are in the same boat that I was growing up, but I would venture to guess that maybe some of you are. Maybe some of you don't know exactly exactly what the word says about same-sex sexuality. Maybe you don't know where it's located. So we're going to take the time today and find those verses and read through them and see what God says about this. But before we do, before we do read those texts, I I need to share with you guys uh, a quote from a guy named John Stott. Now, John Stott was this English theologian author and pastor during the 20th century, and, and some touted him as the greatest pastor in all of England during the 20th century. And this is a, a quote that's in your notes, and I actually threw this in there three weeks ago when I preached uh, about this before, but we never got to it. But it is, I think, vitally important that we share it and start with it this morning. Here's what Stott says. He says, if we come to Scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. You know, it is very much a thing in our Western culture, in our Western mindset, that as we uh, are presented with information or we find information on our own, that we tend to go to that information with the perspective that how does this thing solidify my opinions that I already have? How does this thing solidify and prove what I already believe? And as Stott was talking about in this, uh, this quote here, as American Western Christians, we tend to do the same thing with God's word. So I'm asking you, as we journey through this together today, to, to approach it from a perspective not like that. Because I know that many of us are here today that have already got our minds made up. We already know what God says or think we know what God says about this topic. And some of us are on the side where we believe that God is, is okay with same-sex sexuality, and so we are sitting here, maybe you might be sitting here waiting to be offended, waiting to get, go into a fight. And maybe some of us are pretty sure that God is against same-sex sexuality, and so you're just sitting here waiting to find out, what are some other things that I can use in an argument later on? And then most of us are somewhere in the middle. So I just ask you guys again, as we journey through this together, let us all lay aside our our own thoughts and our own feelings, our own prejudices, so that we can allow God's word to confront us, to disturb our security so that we can hear the thunderclap of God's thoughts and heart on this. All right, let's, let's go to the text now. Now, there are only six scripture references that have any sort of direct reference to same-sex sexuality. Three times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. So let's start in the Old Testament. Let's venture back into the Old Testament, and see what God has to say about same-sex sexuality. And the first occurrence shows up in Genesis 19. And some of you already know this story. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the story I was referencing earlier, the one that I knew most, the one that I was using as my primary uh, defense as to why God hated sexual, uh, homosexuals and the, uh, the gay lifestyle. I cannot say for sure if it was something that I was actually taught or if it was something that I picked up along the way. But it was what I stood for 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 a very long time. But I have since learned that this scene that happens in Genesis 19 where all the men of the city of Sodom come to Lot's door demanding his guests so that they can have uh, violent sex with them. Which on a side note, like, it doesn't matter the gender of Lot's guests. That is a terrible, terrible, violent sin against anybody. But that was not the only thing that Sodom had missed the Mark on. Because I don't, I don't remember being told about Ezekiel chapter 16, where God says, he says that the uh, talks about Sodom's sin and how it was also arrogance, how it was also gluttony, a refusal to help those in need, a general lack of hospitality. Now, I think that we can all probably agree that whether you are an affirming or non affirming Christian, that a story of same sex gang rape is not the best piece of text to use when we're trying to understand what God thinks about same-sex sexuality. Now, the term I just used, affirming and non-affirming, if you are unfamiliar with that, we're gonna, I'm going to use affirming a few more times throughout the course of the today. But, so let me just briefly describe for you what it is. Someone who's affirming, is, it's a word to describe people within the church that hold to the belief that God endorses and is okay with same-sex sexuality as long as it is expressed in marriage. So, again, Genesis 19, not a great reference to use when we are talk when regarding uh, same-sex sexuality. So, let's go to the other verses that are found in the Old Testament. In order to do that, we have to go over to the book of Leviticus. I know it's possible that many of you are not very familiar with this book because outside the book of Numbers, is there any book more difficult to read in the Old Testament? (laughs) But this is a very important book to the Israelite people because we, we have to remember where they have just come from, right? They had just been rescued by God from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And I imagine that they probably forgot what it looked like to live a life that wasn't one of slavery or one that did not reflect the practices, the religious practices of the Egyptians. And so God gave them this book that dealt with areas of ritual worship, It dealt with religious, criminal, and civil law. It was outlining for them what it looks like to live the life God was calling them to. A life that was going to be different from what they had been experiencing in Egypt for so long. And a life that was going to look vastly different than the people that they were going to be interacting with from those days forward. So we go into Leviticus chapter 18. And in this chapter, God is describing a different num- a different, all kinds of different types of sexual immorality and behavior that his people should not be engaging in. And right between uh, God's command to not sacrifice your children to the god Molech, which was an go- ancient god in that area this time, and to not have sex with animals, he says this in verse 22. He says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Now this same command is again reflected in our third reference in the Old Testament, just a few chapters down the road in Leviticus chapter 20, and God is is also giving them uh, punishments for the different sins in this chapter. In verse 13 he says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood shall be on their own heads. Now these two references that we just read from Leviticus are definitely more direct in their address with regards to same-sex sexuality. Far more, they're far better than the Genesis 19 text. And now, I have to tell you guys, I, I, know, I know that there are many, many arguments and rebuttals about these texts and the texts that we're going to hit in the New Testament as well. And I wish that we had time to cover all those things. I wish that we had time to address all the things that people who are uh, affirming Christians bring up. Some of them are are great points, but unfortunately, we're not going to. We we don't have time for that. But I I do want to maybe hit one or two of each out of, out of each section of texts. You know, in this these Old Testament texts, one of the primary things that and affirming affirming Christians usually point to, is the fact that where it's located, it's located in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. And we are New Testament Christians. And that doesn't apply to us. We are not bound by the Old Testament law. And that's true, we are not. And I really get this argument because when you think about it, it feels like that we are somewhat arbitrary With the things that we choose to observe from the Old Testament and the things that we don't. Like, how many of you had bacon this weekend? This week? I did. How many of you have tattoos? I do. How many of you are sitting here right now and you're wearing clothing that has more than one type of uh, uh, material in it? Me too. Guilty of all three. All those are Old Testament laws. Something that we have to keep in mind as we are talking about this is that this is a book of instructions that God is giving to his people on how to live, how to be different in the land that they're going to. And it describes all kinds of different aspects of life. It describes what it looks like to worship him and the rituals that go with that. It described what civil and criminal laws should look like for them because they were not their own society up until this point. And it describes for them moral laws as well. And some of these do in fact carry over and some of them don't. And this is yet again another topic that we don't have time to delineate all the differences between civil and criminal and ritual and moral laws. But one thing that we can know is that if we go back to Leviticus 18 and you read through that, and you take into consideration the thing that we started with, John Stott's quote, if you walk into that with your mind open for what God is saying, I think what you're going to see is that that whole ent- entire chapter almost exclusively deals with same-sex, uh, not same-sex, uh, deals with sexual immorality. All kinds of different sexual immorality. And all those laws about sexual immorality, whether it was adultery, incest, bestiality, and same-sex sexual behavior are all things that are carried over into the writings of the New Testament authors into the teachings of Jesus. So that is the first three pieces of text in the Old Testament. Let's go over to the New Testament and see what God says over here. Now all three of these references are found in writings from Paul, the apostle. Um, And I'm just going to Read through them real quick again like we just did, and then we'll talk about them afterwards, okay? So the first one is found in Romans chapter 1. And this is a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And here's what he has to say to the believers up there. He says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The next reference is another letter of Paul. This time is to the church in Corinth, and here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, Will inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, we have a letter that Paul writes to his beloved disciple Timothy, who was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 11, he says this We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So those are our six references. That's the only places that it addresses this. And something I want to point out with regards to the three that we just read, those, those last two, the ones in Corinthians and one in Timothy, are very similar to the ones that we saw in Leviticus, where they are addressing more than just same-sex sexuality. They are addressing other forms of sexual immorality. They are addressing all sorts of forms of brokenness. All kinds of other ways that people choose to live for themselves. All kinds of other forms of sin and brokenness. And you know, I think that this is often overlooked by those of us who hold to the historical, biblical sexual ethic with regards to marriage and same-sex sexuality. We can easily pretend that Paul didn't just call out the greedy the drunks, the slanderers, the liars, and the people that do everything that's contrary to God's word, like those people aren't doomed to miss the inheritance of the kingdom of God as well. But they are. We're all included in there. And One of the most common arguments about these sections of scripture from affirming Christians is that you know what Paul is actually addressing here is what they 'll say is not same sex sexuality in the terms that we want to say it is, but he 's actually addressing you know uh, sexual exploita- exploitation that was happening with with slaves with young boys, because if Paul had actually known that it was possible for a same sex monogamous, loving relationship to exist, he would not have condemned this. He would have been okay with it. And I, I, under, I get this one. This one makes logical sense to me when I think about context and I think about history. And look, there is a part of me that wishes that, that I could also affirm this. That I could also get on board and say that God does not prohibit same-sex sexual behavior or same-sex sexuality expressed in a marriage, a loving, monogamous relationship. I wish, I want to be able to say that. It would make things so much easier for me and less confrontational, not just as a pastor, but just as a human being. But I can't. I can't the elders in the leadership of this church can't. Because as we have come to God's word and done our best to put aside our own prejudices, our own thoughts, so that we can hear what God's thoughts are, what his heart is in regards to this, we can't agree with that. Because we believe that it is a sin. But we also believe that it is not any different than any other sexual brokenness. It is the same kind of brokenness that this world has to offer that's outside of God's original design and intent for his creation. A design that did not include his creation to define ourselves by our sexuality, but one that he wanted us to define ourselves as children of God. And when we can do that, when we are able to define ourselves as his children and not by our sexuality, then as some of us are called to live single celibate lives, or some of us who are called to live as two opposite sex followers of Jesus in in a loving, committed, covenantal, biblical marriage, we get to experience the fullness that he has intended for us. But outside of these two scenarios, any other sort of sexual expression, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional or mental with the same sex or opposite sex, it misses the mark of God's intention for us to experience sexuality in its original design and sin. And it is sin. Now there is a very, very important point of clarification that I have to make here during this point in our conversation. While we do believe that what God's word teaches is that same-sex sexual behavior is a sin, there is something that I see that is lacking from these six verses. Nowhere does it say that same-sex attraction is a sin. And it is very important for us to recognize that there is a line there between same-sex attraction and same-sex sexual behavior. It is the same line that exists for me, someone who is attracted to the opposite sex. Being attracted to the opposite sex is not a sin for me unless... I take that attraction and I allow it to become desire, lust, fantasy, or for it to morph into an actual physical sexual relationship with a woman that's not my wife. If I do those things, I am in sin. I am in sexual brokenness. We believe that God's word is saying the same thing. For those who are same-sex attracted, as long as they are not doing those same things, they are not in sin. But unfortunately, for far too long, the church and Christians within our churches have not been able to have that line between those two things. Unfortunately, for far too long, we have connected those two things and we've said they are the same. To be same-sex attracted means you are automatically doing same-sex sexual behavior. Which is why we have stories like Eric's. You know, I wonder if Eric had come to his parents that day and instead of telling them that he was same-sex attracted, what if he had told them, hey, I have this serious addiction to pornography and I don't know what to do about it. I need some help. Or what if he came to them and said, look, I I think I might have got a girl at school pregnant. What am I supposed to do? What do you you think his parents' reaction would have been in those circumstances? Would they have been different? Would they have reacted differently? Would they have kicked him out for that? Truly impossible for us to really know but I imagine that they, they probably would have. I think they probably would have handled it differently. But sadly, it's too late. It doesn't make a difference anymore. You see, as, after Eric was kicked out of his home, he wandered the streets as a homeless teen. But to try to make the best of his circumstances, he took it upon himself to try to, uh, to welcome and take care of all the other teens that he saw and ran into that were in the same situation that he was. But his life continued to be difficult. And by his late teenage years, Eric decided to take his own life. I think what's happened far too often for, for Christians is that they've taken these truths that we see in God's word today. What God says about same-sex sexual behavior and they've turned them into weapons. Weapons of judgment and condemnation. And so instead of walking lives that we have been called to, walking lives of of grace and truth, Christians have been walking lives of truth and judgment. I know walking in God's grace and truth is not an easy thing because I know what's at the trailhead of that pathway. At the trailhead of that pathway is Jesus' call that he makes to those who want to be his disciples. It happens over and over in the Gospels. If you want to follow me, You have to pick up your cross and come along. You have to choose to die to yourself every day. You have to choose to kill off your desires of your flesh. You have to kill off the desire to do things your own way. Your desire to make your own definition of what is good and what is evil. You have to kill off your your desire to decide who is worthy of God's grace and forgiveness of who is worthy of love those things must die Jesus' words in John 13 come to mind for me here he says this to his, his disciples in verses 34 and 35 a new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another By this, our love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. To walk in grace and truth, we must first deny ourselves and then we must love like Jesus loved. It is worth noting in that text that there are no qualifiers. There is no subtext there. Well, if they agree with your political stance, or if they have the same moral code as you, then you should love them. There are no qualifiers here because Jesus has no qualifiers for those he loves. One of the most powerful and hope-giving stories that we see in the text is found in John 8, where Jesus is in the area of the temple and he's teaching And one day, while he's doing that, the Pharisees and teachers of the law drag before him a woman that they say was caught in adultery. And they throw him at his feet and say, Jesus, the the law says that we should stone this woman who was caught in adultery. What do you say? And after a little bit, Jesus said, you know what? Those of you who have no sin, you cast the first stone. And as that sank in to those Pharisees and teachers of the law, they begin to drop their rocks and walk away. And Jesus said to the woman who was at his feet, where have they gone? Where, where are the men that were here? Have none of them condemned you? And she said, no. And he looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And sin no more. The only person that day that had the right, the authority to be the first one to throw the stone because he was out without sin was Jesus. And instead of deciding to condemn her for her sexual immorality, he chose to love and forgive. We are just like those Pharisees and teachers of the law sometimes. Look, none of us, none of us can be the ones to condemn someone for their sin. But we can be the ones to love them like Jesus did. And what might that look like for you today? What might that look like for you to love those who are in your life that are same-sex attracted or in same-sex sexual behavior I think that it starts with us actually engaging with these people. To stop avoiding them in our lives. I think it looks like us inviting them to come to church with us, inviting them to sit beside us. If if you know somebody here that is, it would be not avoiding them in this auditorium, but actually sitting with them and worshiping with them. It looks like inviting them to a coffee, Or a meal. So that you can sit down and hear their story. Hear what God is working on in their own lives. It looks like inviting them to your life group. So that they can also experience what it looks like to be in a biblical community. Who is learning what Jesus calls us to. And they can walk alongside us and learn right beside us. And it looks like us starting to see them as the image bearers of God that they are. No different than anybody else. Now, not every story is like Eric's. There are more and more stories that are happening that for people who are same-sex attracted and are being loved well in the church fellow followers of Jesus that see their sexual brokenness no different than someone who is experiencing same-sex attraction or is in same-sex sexual behavior. And because of that, they're able to experience what God's design and purpose for them is. They're able to find their identity in Jesus and not their sexuality. Which is the same journey for all of us learning to find our identity in Jesus and not in our brokenness. I desperately want this church to be a church like that. To be a community of Jesus followers that live like this. That live out God's grace and truth with love. That can produce stories like the story of a young man named Matt who grew up in the church had a Christian family, but his experience in church was not great. But later on in life, he found a community of Jesus followers that would come alongside him and supported him and welcomed him, and walked with him as he chose to surrender his sexuality to Jesus and to live a life of celibacy. Or a story like Brenna's, who also grew up in the church, Who, when she went to her youth pastor and shared with her youth pastor that she was wrestling with same sex attraction and didn't know what to do, her youth pastor did not condemn her. He did not kick her out of youth group. Instead, he saw her, he heard her, and he reassured her that she was not alone. Which, which gave her the strength to be able to continue to pursue Jesus and fall in love with him more than, her, than she was in love with her own sexuality. Because Matt and Brenna and so many others have found communities of Jesus followers where they have been treated with grace and truth in love, they have had the opportunity to share their stories and bring hope to others who are coming up from the same Scenarios that they did. And at the same time, those stories help us as a community. They help us learn to, to know what it looks like to love like Jesus better than we have in the past. No matter what a person's brokenness is, whether it's sexual, whether it has to do with pride, whether it has to do with greed, we can love one another better because of stories like this. No matter what someone's sex is, what their gender is, what their sexual orientation, political affiliation, their race, any identifier that you want to throw out there. If we love like Jesus, we're able to see one another as being his image bearers. And this is the greatest hope that any of us have. And this is the way of Jesus. It is the way he lived his life, and it is the way that he calls us, those who choose to follow him, to also live and love each of our days. Every week at this point in our service, we we get the opportunity to remember and celebrate through communion what Jesus accomplished for all of creation through his way of living and loving. It is a celebration that is open for all who are a part of God's family. No matter what your brokenness is that you walked in here with, no matter what the brokenness is that you bring to the foot of the cross, you are a part of the family, and we want you to celebrate with us today. If you need one of these packages, if you raise your hand, one of the the guys in the aisle here will bring one to you. You know, this, uh, this past week I finally got to starting season three of The Chosen. And no show has ever made me cry more than that show. But one of the things that I have loved about watching The Chosen is how they have brought to life all the people that I've been reading about in the text for so long. Giving them personalities I love how they have been showing the tension that had to exist between these 12 guys who came from different backgrounds. As they just tried to follow Jesus every day for three years. And I wonder if that night, you know, as they sat down for their, what they probably thought was just a regular Passover meal, I wonder... How many of those guys still had tensions and prejudices between one another? Still, small barriers that existed between them, keeping them from loving one another with the grace and truth that they had been watching Jesus do all along. We are not so different. I wonder how many of you here today are sitting here and you're getting to remember and celebrate with the family what Jesus did for us. But there are still tensions and prejudices in your heart. There are still things that are, you're holding on to that are creating barriers between you and somebody else. Are there places where you have not loved others like Jesus has? Have you been allowing someone else's brokenness to be the deciding factor of whether you see and love them? I want to give us just a few moments to wrestle with those questions with God. And if there is somewhere that you're doing those things in your life, Confess that to him. Ask him for forgiveness. And maybe maybe you can ask him for an opportunity and the courage to go to that person that you have those offenses against and confess that to them and ask their forgiveness. But I just want to give you a few moments here to just look within yourself and listen to the Holy Spirit. on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and for you and for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember this morning together how Jesus lived his life of grace and truth. And after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember the new command to love one another as he has. Father God, Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to come together as your your dearly loved children. Who are different in all kinds of ways, Lord. Different in our brokenness, different in our gifts. We're just different. But God, you love us all the same, no matter what. Lord, I just pray that what the conversation started today, Lord, is not ending here. That people will go and wrestle with your text more. That they will look at not just what you say about this topic of same-sex sexuality in your in your book, Lord, but they, they will look at what we, you have called us to do, the way that you have called us to live, the way that you have called us to love one another. And Lord, that we will be challenged in those things so that we may live a life that is honoring to you, a life that is full of grace, walked out in truth, and full of love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.